Maths Talk by AMSI Schools, where conversations in maths become part of your professional learning. My name's Leanne McMahon, and joining me as co-host today is Michael O'Connor, my colleague from AMSI Schools. Hi, Michael. Hey, Leanne. Good to see you. Today, we're chatting with Mike Clapper, former Executive Director and Chief Mathematician at the Australian Mathematics Trust, about geometry and helping students develop their geometric reasoning. Welcome to the program, Mike. Good to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the Australian Maths Trust and what you've been doing over your years there? Okay, so I've had a lifetime in uh, teaching uh, as a maths teacher and as a school principal, but for quite a long time I've been a volunteer with the Australian Mathematics Trust helping with setting questions for the Australian Maths Competition, which I expect uh, many of your listeners will be familiar with, or at least I hope they will. <laughs> if not, we will put a link to it. Of course. And, and some years ago, the opportunity arose for me to take on the position of Executive Director of the Trust. And I decided to take up that opportunity and uh, I moved to Canberra, where the Trust is based, and worked in that role for a number of years. And it was a completely different role to what I'd done before. It was still running an organization, but the Maths Trust is responsible for a variety of maths competitions right up to and including the International Maths Olympiad and the Informatics Olympiad, which, by the way, is happening as we speak. And we also prepare resources for students, and we're trying to encourage students of all levels of ability to engage in problem-solving activities. So I've been working with the Trust on the development of new resources uh, and the maintenance of our competition platform and presence and trying to achieve the best possible results in international competitions. So it's, it's a sort of pyramid where you try and work with a very broad base of as many students as possible, right up to the very elite students that compete in international competitions. Sounds absolutely thrilling. Well, Michael's going to kick us off with our first question about geometry. This is a question that has come out of some of our recent podcasts around what geometry is at different levels. But from your perspective, why do we need to teach geometry as a specific part of mathematics? Good of you to start with an easy one. <laughs> well, of course, we could, we could take the easy way out and say, well, it's in the Australian curriculum. But that's not a sensible answer because it's much more nuanced than that. And it's more complex as well because even separating geometry from number or from chance and probability is, is really difficult because there are many overlaps. I think that the world consists of shapes in, in solid or not so solid form. And trying to understand that world uh, is greatly enhanced if you have some understanding of geometrical concepts. So it's vital really for students to develop the capacity to recognize patterns and shapes and to promote their capacity to think uh, geometrically because they, they see these things all around them and they need to make sense of the world. If I could, I'd like to break that down though a little further into a number of uh, different components. The first is to say that geometry does provide a kind of vehicle for understanding the notion of proof. And I think this is quite important. But in case you think that that just refers to the old kind of Euclidean geometry, uh, uh, that's been very much reduced in schools over the years. But you can still find lots of instances of uh, opportunities for talking about proof in 
tiling questions or in network problems and many other simple geometrical situations involving symmetry, rotation, reflection, in which you can actually show that things are true or not true uh, by using geometrical reasoning. So there are not that many opportunities across the whole of the curriculum for students to actually engage with the notion of proof, and I think it's a pretty important idea. So that's one really good reason for teaching geometry, whether it's traditional Euclidean geometry or maybe the more modern approach to geometry that's um, visible in the Australian curriculum. But maybe even more importantly, there is quite a lot of research around nowadays which suggests that the development of visuospatial skills is more closely correlated with mathematical success than any other individual subskill. And some people might say, well, yes, some students are just innately good at visuospatial thinking, and so they tend to turn out to be good mathematicians. And if that was the case, that would still be worth recognizing. But what has been shown in research and in Australia, Professor Tom Lowry at the University of Canberra has, has been a leader in this particular research. What has been shown is that we can actually teach students to become better visuospatial thinkers. And as a result of doing that, we can improve their overall mathematical success. So that's quite a striking finding and one that we would be foolish to ignore, in, in my opinion. Is that to do with that relationship between, you know, playing with Lego and the Meccano and those sorts of things as little kids? Yes, and there's always the nature and nurture argument, you know. Mm. Does somebody become good at spatial thinker because they play with Lego or are some people just innately drawn to it? And the mm. truth is probably some mixture of the two. But there appears to be no doubt that if we do uh, have opportunities for interaction and they can be structured and scaffolded in a way which leads to uh, improvement in understanding, uh, then we can develop students' uh, skills in the visuospatial area and hence mathematics generally. Yeah. One of the things I was reminded of while you were talking, Mike, was there's a lovely little story that goes back to the 1920s or 1930s about a middle school American girl who happened to be blind and had come up with a proof for Pythagoras and that idea of visual spatial, someone who's born from blind doesn't have that innate at all and yet she was able to come to grips with that classic idea that's encompassed in Pythagoras and come up with something that was completely unique. Mm. That's pretty interesting because it's a demonstration, I guess, that when we talk about an ability like visuospatial, which we connect immediately with sight, but but it also has that kinesthetic element and and you can get some of the same understandings through different senses. And indeed, uh, um, we'll probably talk about this later. in terms of understanding shapes and and geometrical concepts, we need to actually see and play and feel objects. Uh, So it's, yes, it's an interactive and and multi-sensory experience. Uh, If I could go on to another (laughs) aspect of why we should teach geometry, which is the initial question. One of the things is that a, a lot of students think that maths is numbers. And of course, numbers are pretty crucial in mathematics. But that means we tend to praise students who are good with numbers and almost associate that as being, well, they're good at mathematics. And so students who are really good with their geometrical understanding, if that's not being tapped by teachers, then those skills that they possess will never be recognized. And I have seen many instances where students who don't have a particularly natural 
number sense turn out to be really good mathematicians because they have this capacity to think in a spatial way. And so when it gets on, even to like combinatorics problems, which are at the fiendish end of mathematics very often, uh, they, they rise to the top. So if you don't discover uh, those abilities and if you don't praise them and say, yes, these are important uh, parts of mathematics, then you're missing out on a whole possible population of good mathematicians. And maybe to give that a more concrete element, one of the things that I've noticed in teaching high school mathematics is that when you get to the senior years and students are, are working their way through one of the VCE mathematics subjects or something like that, the students that do really well tend to be the ones who can connect the geometry with the algebra. To give you a simple example, the idea that as soon as you see that the question involves a tangent, you're thinking, oh, the discriminant of the quadratic will be zero. So you've got that immediate connection between an algebraic idea and a geometric idea. And students who struggle with uh, being able to combine the algebra and the geometry and see both as parts of the same thing tend to do less well. So the more we can promote that capacity to make those connections in the early years of schooling, the better they're likely to be when they need it in year 11 and 12. Well, you've certainly convinced me, Mike. You really have. So how would you suggest that teachers begin to help students explore these geometric concepts? So I think the answer it should always start with through play and through observation. So with numbers, we would be teaching sharing by giving young students a pile of beads or counters and sharing them out or something like that. Well, there are plenty of examples in the environment of shapes to sort. I mean, the, the traditional child's toy of the shape sorter, of course, is an introduction to geometry. And I think that as we try and develop more sophisticated understandings of things like symmetry and rotation and reflection, we can also find ways of introducing those ideas in a playful way. Let me, if I may, give you a couple of examples. And maybe uh, the teachers out there listening can do this either as a thought experiment, or if you've got the materials at hand, you can try it yourselves. So we could probably do this with a, a year three or four uh, class. We could ask them to take a, a square piece of paper and to fold that piece of paper once and then twice to make a smaller square. I, they will be able to figure out how to do that, I suspect. What I'd like you to do now is to cut off one corner of that square, say at roughly 45 degrees, or if they don't understand angles, we can draw that to show them what we mean. Do you think that the students will be able to predict what that shape will look like when it's unfolded? And of course, if we don't tell them which corner to cut off, there are a number of different ways that it could look. So it's not an easy question. And we set questions like this in the Australian Maths Competition, and some students just find them very easy and others find them quite difficult. But of course, if you've actually done it, you have more chance of being able to understand what's happening. And even in a simple question like that, you are dealing with rotations, reflections, and symmetry. And so you're introducing that idea of an axis of symmetry and whichever corner you cut off, you're going to get a shape which has fourfold symmetry. That symmetry will be different depending on which corner you cut off and how many squares will you end up with or how many pieces will you end up even? That's an, an interesting question and, and maybe not obvious to everybody what the answer to that will be. So an experiment like that, which 
then can be unpacked and lead to a discussion on symmetry or, or rotation or reflection, I think is quite powerful for students. And, you know, it, it leads to the idea of making very nice Christmas decorations and you know, practical uh, purposes, uh, which, again, is, is symmetry at work. Yes. As you've been speaking, I've just done it with a post-it note. And yes. what I find really interesting is that I immediately thought, oh, yes, you cut off what would be the middle one. And then mm-hmm. I thought, oh, if I cut the other ones off, I couldn't imagine yeah. immediately what yeah. it would look like. And I can imagine that would be a really good class activity. Thanks for that. It's a simple activity. The results are not going to be obvious to everybody, uh, but the discussion that follows uh, should be interesting. I mean, I guess from the teacher's perspective, you could say, I want you to cut off a particular corner and identify that corner, or you could just say, cut off a corner and then notice that, that they all get or they get several different <laughs> results depending on which corner they cut off and may be quite surprised by that. Here at APSI, we're all for finding out what happens when you do something. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I went to this uh, demonstration. I, I, I've done it since with classes where you make a particular shape with using Mobius strips, which are sort of one-sided topological straight shapes. I'm sure you'll know about them. And if you follow the instructions correctly and you do the cuts correctly, you get two interlinked hearts, which is kind of cute. Um, but if you if you make one mistake, and it's just to do with the direction in which you twist one of the folds of the Mobius strips, you get two completely unconnected uh, shapes, uh, which don't look like hearts at all. So it, it's rather nice because you do it with a you can do it with a whole class, and some of them will follow what you do, and some won't. And it simply comes down to the fact that it's a left hand rather than a right hand twist in one of the uh, sections. Now this is probably not a grade three uh, activity, but it's just interesting and quite cute that you can get two different results through seemingly doing the same thing, but because of the topological properties of the Mermaid strips, it leads to a different result. Anyway, let me give you one other example that you can try and visualize. And if you've got a dice uh, with you, uh, you might like to try this. If you haven't, you might try and visualize it and see if you could uh, answer the question. So imagine you take a normal dice numbered one to six, and with opposite sides like normal adding up to seven. So you place it with the six facing upwards and the three facing forward. Now what you do is you now rotate the dice over its front edge and then you roll it from its new position over its right hand edge. Now can you tell me without actually doing that, which number is now on top of the dice? Can you picture it, visualize it and do the two rotations two 90-degree rotations of that dice and tell me what number is now on top. And a lot of people can't do that. It's not easy. But if you get students having a go at that kind of thing, again, they're they're seeing uh, rotational effects and they can make up their own questions. They can challenge another student. They can say, what if I do three rolls forward and two rolls to the side? What's going to be on top? And they will get better at it. If they do that several times and they repeat several experiments, they'll certainly get better. It's something that we really need to teach our kids, the visualisation, and that's a fun way of doing it. Very challenging too. I was rolling and moving around. and I got as far as a four somewhere, but then I'd lost it. <laughs> well, actually, there's an interesting um, element to that which I haven't mentioned, and that is that although all conventional dice have opposite sides adding up to seven, that doesn't mean to say that they're all the same. Mm. There are actually mirror image dice, and some dice are manufactured which are the mirror image of other dice. So if you do this 
with one dice, it might be different if you do it with another one because there are two possibilities. It's called the chiracy of the dice. So, so <laughs> that of cause chaos in the classroom. <laughs> yes, you have a set of dice that all have the same uh, orientation. I would be quite happy to do that in a year nine class Mm -hmm. just to promote the conversation. And it comes back to that idea of proof and reasoning and justification. I always find that things like that are great opportunities to help develop not just the thinking, but also the communication. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that you, Mike, as chief mathematician at the Australian Mathematics Trust said, oh, that's not the answer I was supposed to get. I need to have the dice in front of me. I think that's fantastic. Oh, be assured, uh, a lot of these geometrical ideas are quite hard to, to predict, even relatively simple scenarios. But I find that when we're going on holiday, I pack the boot of the car. And you know, when you do something like packing the boot of a car, you're using geometrical understanding. You're using Pythagoras. I, my daughter was having a kitchen fitted and she had one of those big kind of countertops. And when the guys brought it, they said, well, it's not going to fit in your lift. And I said, believe me, it will fit in your lift. I've done the calculations. But they were trying to put it in one way around and it wouldn't go in the way around they were putting it. And they assured me that it couldn't be done. I said, well, if you just turn it around this way and you... So, you know, there are advantages in having some geometrical understanding. And if you can develop that geometrical understanding, people will be better at you know, moving things around and packing the boot of their car and and indeed, you know, their cupboards. You know, Um, packing the boot of my car is my superpower. (laughs) I used to go camping and I could fit six weeks worth of camping equipment, including a tent, Mm -hmm. microwave, everything into the boot of my car. Yes. There we well, go. And you're using your geometrical skills in a playful uh, and enjoyable way when you do that. That's right. No one's allowed near the boot of my car, but <laughs> I'm in charge of that. That brings up a lot of memories for me for when I was in the in the classroom. And one of the instructions that I think all teachers give to students is draw a diagram. Unfortunately, diagrams are static objects. And to be able to think about, say, the dice that you were talking about and turn it around to different perspectives is a dynamic process. Mm-hmm. How does that fit in with the, the primary goal of mathematics in general? Well, I'm going to answer that in, in two parts. I just first want to talk about that sort of static dynamic issue because now there are a lot of tools that we can use. That means we can actually do geometry in a dynamic way, even on, on the computer, you know, like tools like GeoGebra, but also uh, some of the games in which you can take a shape and rotate that shape and, and, and move it around uh, means that you can employ uh, those skills and students can develop those skills uh, in, a, in a teaching context. So drawing a diagram nowadays could be uh, draw it on screen uh, in a way that it can be rendered three-dimensionally and then rotated. There's software that allows you to be able to do that. But look, you know, as, as mathematics teachers, I, I would say that our fundamental job is to try and teach students how to think. And what do we mean by being able to think? So I don't mean the sort of regurgitative model whereby if you show somebody 10 problems that are pretty much exactly the same and then you set them an 11th problem, they can do it. I mean, they do need to develop skills of that kind, but that's not really what I mean by thinking. I mean being able to solve problems adaptively because 
If we can only solve problems that are exactly like the ones that have just been demonstrated to us, we're not really moving very far. And we really need to expose them to lots of different contexts and see that uh, mathematical reasoning can be applied in, in different ways. And that means we need to encourage a sort of mental flexibility to find ways of dealing with with a new problem. I mean, I'm sometimes puzzled by the nature of assessment. And this happens even at university level sometimes where a maths exam uh, will be just lots of examples that are very similar to the ones that they practiced. And that's not how maths crops up in the real world. When, when mathematicians in the real world have a problem or when you want to pack the boot of your car, the things that you want to put in there are probably not exactly the same set of things that you put in there the time before. And so you need to be adaptive in the way that you deal with that problem. So we've got to teach students how to do that. And I think geometrical problems probably more readily than numerical problems uh, give them practice in that kind of uh, adaptive thinking. And one of the things I like is that quite a lot of problems that seem to be algebraic problems can be turned into geometrical problems. So a bit like, say, if we want to find the sum of the numbers from one to 100 to go into a sort of classic you know, famous problem, then of course we can represent that as a triangular number, but we can represent it by a series of squares, which we can use to make a rectangle by doubling it up, turning it upside down and doubling it. I'm sure you've all seen that demonstration before. Uh, and so we can get a shape which we know the area of from which we can find the answer to the original problem and to generalize that a little more any arithmetic series with positive terms and uh, the formula for the sum of the terms of that series is the same as the trapezium formula for a very good reason it looks like a trapezium when you represent it geometrically so i think for students what i've found is that if you teach students the formula for the sum of an arithmetic progression. They will maybe remember it, then notoriously slippery. But if you show them that the sum of an arithmetic series is actually a trapezium, and they can see why there is a connection between the trapezium area formula and the uh, arithmetic sum formula, then there is a much stronger chance that they will remember it because there's a strong picture associated with the formula. So I think we can use geometry powerfully to enhance other areas of mathematics as well as being useful in its own right. It's amazing that powerful nature of geometry to actually show what's going on in algebra. Even the sum of the odd numbers always giving you a square. So you can obviously represent that situation geometrically. And it's really obvious when you see it geometrically, it's really obvious why it works. I could give you many, many examples of the <laughs> algebra coming together in ways which will aid understanding. I actually, some years ago, was teaching a year 11 specialist maths class, and we got to the stage where we were doing arithmetic series. And at the same time, I had a year five enrichment class. And I thought, well, I'm going to teach them arithmetic series as well. But being year fives, I didn't want to use any algebra. So I did it all by pictures. And um, being a little mischievous, I decided at the end of this unit that I would set them both the same test. And the year fives, in many ways, well, they did just as well as the year 11s, because you know, the year 11s, they say to you, just tell us the formula. And, and they almost become resistant to wanting to learn by pictures, because they've been taught that there's a way in which you're meant to learn, and we need to somehow get over that and get them to think more creatively. But the year fives, of course, they're not 
uh, hampered by those sort of years of misteaching that may have occurred in between. <laughs> and so uh, I just taught them about jumps, which was the jump from one term to the next. And then we had stacking cans in the supermarket to get the sum of the series and so forth. Really, these are not ideas that can't be understood by younger students. Yeah. Mm. Some very famous proofs by professional mathematicians have come about because it starts off as a number theory or an algebraic problem. Mm-hmm. They've transformed it into a geometric problem mm-hmm. and they've made it a whole lot simpler to conceptualise and then come up with a proof. Indeed. So that idea of swapping from one discipline or area of maths to another has a lot of power in being able to actually arrive at a proof whereas in its original form it might just be too difficult so initially you need exposure to all of these areas of mathematics and then whenever you can find nice links between those areas of mathematics you need to exploit them to the max the links are such an important part of maths uh, when it when it comes to proof we haven't really talked much about proof but i've done a lot of tiling proofs with younger students with year five and six students and when they actually come up with a logical proof that something's impossible they are really excited because they know that uh, saying I've tried it a lot of times and it doesn't work they know that that isn't a proof but they don't necessarily know what would be a proof in that situation and when you can come up with a logical construction that at the end of which you can say and therefore it's impossible to do this that that's a really great moment for well it's been absolutely mind-blowing having you on mike it's really been fantastic i've learned so much and i've actually made a number of connections myself so i really appreciate that mike has kind provided some accompanying episode notes which will be available to download through our calculate.org.au website as well as the links to all of the other related resources thanks so much for joining us mike it's been absolutely fantastic right okay that's great thank you thank you you can reach us by email on choosemaths at amsi.org.au and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at AMSI Schools or on Facebook. And don't forget our weekly Maths Talk Twitter chat at 8 o'clock on Thursday nights, Sydney and Melbourne time. Just look for and follow the hashtag Maths Talk. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye.